Um, I'm carrying on my series in Esther, and I'm going to give you a little recap in case you've forgotten what's happened before, or if you weren't here um, and don't know. So the, the book of Esther is set in the capital city, Susa, of the massive Persian Empire. It was the biggest empire um, at that point that had ever existed, with a king that is given to excesses. He loves lavish banquets and that kind of thing. And he um, is easily taken in by his advisors, very ill-advised often, plans. And after one of these schemes, we saw the king make Esther his queen. After having gathered, probably by force, all of the pretty virgins from the entire empire, um, so that he could kind of test them out, and, and you can imagine what that might mean, and pick one to be his wife. So, Esther was chosen, and she becomes queen. And she is a young Jewess who was brought up by her uncle Mordecai, who advises her to keep it a secret, the fact that she is a Jew. So she settles into her place in the Persian palace. Mordecai, her uncle, is an upright man, a God follower, and he's unwilling to compromise which leads him to refuse to bow down to one of the king's power-hungry advisors who wants everyone to bow down to him. Only Mordecai won't do that. And it's a guy called Haman, and he's like the baddie of the story. And this Haman guy, because Mordecai won't bow down to him, he gets so angry about this, and it so irritates him, that he manages to get the king to put his seal and approve his plan to annihilate not just Mordecai, but the, all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. Now, the king doesn't know that his own wife is a Jew, and yet he approves this plan to annihilate all of the Jews. And Mordecai reacts when he hears this news by ripping his clothes and putting on ash cloth and ashes instead and going around the city wailing loudly. And Esther finds out about this and wants to know why he is doing this. And it, it, it troubles her. She can't go to him. And so they ha she has a trusted um, servant who ends up taking messages between her and Mordecai. And during that exchange, Mordecai manages to explain to her what's going to happen to her people and manages to convince her to go to the king and ask for his help to save her people. Now, the only problem in this is that if she goes to the king, there is a law that you can only go to the king if you've been called into his presence. If you go in without being invited, then you can be killed. And he hasn't invited her in for 30 days. And so she risks her life if she goes to see him. He needs to lift his scepter when she walks in, otherwise she is sentenced to death. And last time I spoke, we looked at how Esther prepared to go face the king. And it helped us look at how we might face a crisis. And one of the things that she knew that we can also know if we choose to is that she didn't face this alone. She gathered all the Jews in Susa with her to fast with her as she prepared to go see the king. She knew that she didn't face it on her own because she belonged to a people. And not only that, she belonged to God's people. She belonged to a God who knew what it was like to, go, to face a crisis. He had faced a crisis on the cross. 
himself and that he stands next to us and goes with us into any crisis we face if we'll just let him come with us. And before doing anything, Esther called all her people to fast for her and fasting for them was a symbol of saying, we can't do this on our own. We need you, God. We need you to help us in this situation. So before doing anything, she and all her people prepared spiritually for what she was about to do, showing that they needed God to help them. And so today, we're going to see what happened when she went in to see the king. So she's had her three days of fasting from food and water, so she's feeling pretty weak. She's going in to see the most powerful man around, uninvited, and could be sentenced to death. So you can imagine how she's feeling. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So far, so good. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Bingo. She's got it. She's got what she needs. Now she can ask him to save her people. Job done. But this is her reply. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. Now, this is a bit of a curveball that Esther's thrown. Isn't it fairly urgent that she asks the king to save her people? They're all going to be killed. Why is she messing around? And why is she bringing the arch enemy of the Jews, Haman, into the picture? Every time he's come into the picture so far, he has caused a lot of problems. Is she just looking for trouble? What is she doing? So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Okay, fair enough. So Haman hasn't caused a problem this time. They've had their banquet. All good. And the king's still in a good mood. Here's her chance to ask him to save her people. This is her reply. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. As if. How many of us would have answered with that when all our people were faced with being annihilated? Surely she's going to wind the king up. She's trying her luck. He's not exactly the most even-tempered of guys. He's not the most rational or level-headed guy. And now she has to wait until tomorrow. Anything could happen in the meantime. Esther is seeking to bring justice in a horrendous and unjust situation. And we follow the God of justice. We can trust that he will bring justice about in the end. It might be in this life, it might be in the next life. 
And as he builds his kingdom and establishes his rule of this unjust world in order to redeem it, he uses us as his agents to bring about change, to bring about justice where it's lacking in this broken world. In this story, he uses Esther. But in each of our stories, and in our story as a whole, as the people of Sutton Coldfield Baptist that come to the 6.30 service, he uses us to bring justice, if we'll let him, and to build his kingdom of justice and grace and truth and fairness. So, how did Esther go about doing this? We're going to learn from this slightly odd story. She's not actually accomplished anything yet. She's come out with some weird replies. What can we learn about working for justice from what we've seen Esther do? The very first thing she's done is that she's been convinced to pursue justice in this particular situation. She could have been seeking justice in all sorts of things. After all, she'd been taken from her family, away from everything she knew, to be groomed and prepared to become the wife of a king that she hadn't known before this, who wasn't from her people, and live in a palace away from everything she'd ever known. She had plenty of personal issues that she could be fighting for. She had plenty of things that she could be fighting for justice. But first, she had decided what she was going to stand up for. She'd been persuaded by Mordecai to stand up for her people. They were going to be annihilated. This was what she was focused on. It wasn't on getting herself out of the palace, getting herself back to her family. It wasn't any of those things. It was this particular issue. And we each need to do this. We have to choose our battles. No one could stand up against all the injustices in the world at the same time. No one can hold that much information in their mind, let alone make like, uh, proper stands against that many different things that would actually be meaningful. We have to choose our battles. If we, as an army, were facing things on every side, we wouldn't make much progress. If I could skate, now I use this analogy because we were using it in the kids' talk this morning. I can't skate, just to put that out there, not to make you nervous or anything. But if, we, if I was skating and I was trying to go in every direction all at once, in the end, I'd end up on the floor. But I definitely wouldn't get anywhere. I'm not going to go anywhere. We have to choose our battles. We can't go in every direction all at once. We're limited. We're human. And God will guide us into what the issue is. So before we go into actually learning from what Esther did, apart from choosing the battles, I want you to think of something. Think of an issue of injustice. Maybe something that has come up during the week, maybe something you've seen in news, maybe something close to home, maybe something close to someone you love, maybe something that is related to what you do. Uh, whatever it might be, think of something, an issue, and hold that in your mind as we talk. And you might change what you choose later on. It's not the end of the world. I'm not committing you to anything right now. God might guide you in a different direction. The idea is there will be something, and we have to hold something in mind as we think of this, and as we look at Esther's behavior and see what we can learn from how she worked to bring about justice. In order to bring about justice, Esther had to balance several things, things that we also, if we want to get anywhere, need to learn to balance with each other. Now, 
even the professionals, I don't know if anyone else watched it in the Olympics, I found the skateboarding absolutely fascinating, especially when it was like 13 year olds or whatever, absolutely fascinating. But even they, when they get going at first, they have to get up speed. And when they're getting up speed, they have to have both sets of wheels down on the ground. They have to have the balance there. Later on, and we'll get to that, later on, they do go up in the air, they do all kinds of things. They do all of that, but initially, to get going, they have to keep the balance. If they go completely over onto one side, let's see if I can do it. If they go completely onto one side and, and just stand there like that, they're not going to go anywhere. They're not going to do any tricks. Sometimes we have to hold two things together in order to get going, and that is what Esther did. And we're going to look at two different things, two different sets of things that she balanced in order to work towards justice. And I think they're things that each of us need to be able to balance if we're going to work for justice. And so, Esther had fasted. She'd called others to fast. She had spiritually prepared. That's the first thing that she balanced, held in balance. She was doing a seemingly reckless thing. She could be killed, but it didn't mean that she threw out all wisdom. She knows what she has to do, but it doesn't mean that she can't use sense in how she takes that risk. Which meant, whilst she was taking spiritual preparation seriously, she also took seriously another thing, so as to do what God had placed her in this position to do. And the second thing, was contextual sensitivity. Knowing and keeping to certain cultural expectations of her and norms in order to be heard and put herself in the position that would help her to be heard. She dressed in the way that was expected of her. She entered and followed the norms of the way that she should greet the king once she entered, touching the end of his scepter. She speaks in the way that the king would expect, in a way that respects him, that honours and defers to him. She might have been tempted to shout at him, but she doesn't. She keeps to all these things that are expected of her. She'd spiritually prepared, and then she'd used her knowledge of the culture that she'd been brought into to use her position to her advantage, to use those things in order to be heard, to bring about justice. Jesus embodied this balance whilst he was on earth. He, the incarnation, he became one of us. Jesus took on flesh and blood to be like them, the Bible says. He literally became one of us, but specifically, he became a first century Middle Eastern Jew with all their cultural norms, with their clothes, with their language, with their food. He told stories using illustrations that they would understand. Farming, weddings, specific plants that they were familiar with, animals that they saw around them, specific ethnicities were the characters in his stories, people, nationalities that they knew about and that they had ideas about, objects like coins and lamps that they commonly used, specific jobs that people did then. And he also kept to their places and ways of worship on the whole. But... He never sinned, and he was constantly grounded in prayer with his father. The Bible says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And he actually prayed before every major event of his ministry. 
Another person who was a really good example of this, obviously Jesus was the perfect example of keeping both these things in balance, but another person was Hudson Taylor, who's a famous missionary to China before when most of China had never heard of Jesus. And he is famous for wearing Chinese um, clothes and doing his hair in the way that they did. Um, and really sacrificially taking the good news about Jesus, about Jesus' love, about his kingdom to the people of China. And uh, at the time, the way that he did this wasn't received very well outside of China. And I read this about him this week. Hudson Taylor's decision to shave his head and adopt Chinese dress was rooted in his deep respect for Chinese culture and his view of the role of the missionary. Many Chinese objected to Christianity, he argued, because it seemed to be a foreign religion. His decision was greeted with derision and contempt by most Westerners. We don't want anyone to think that our religion looks like a foreign religion, because at the end of the day, Jesus came for, every, for the whole world. He came for each person. If the way that we are communicating it makes it seem like a foreign thing, we're doing something wrong because it is for them. It's not that we water it down. It's not that we say something against the character of Jesus, but people have to understand it. They have to understand it and they have to see it as something that can be theirs, that they can receive into their lives. And over the centuries, there have been different things that have called rifts caused rifts amongst Christians. The fact that I'm up here is, wouldn't be seen a, a, a while ago. Women preaching at the front, and it's still something that brings contempt. I'm wearing trousers, that's caused rifts. There were drums in the worship, that has caused rifts. But there's all kinds of stuff, and there's plenty of things going on. And actually amongst us here, we won't all agree on all the different things that cause rifts, and that's actually a good thing. It's good to have different opinions, but yet we can still come together to worship the same God. But we need to seek God in this. We need to think about it. Am I disagreeing with this because it's fundamentally against Jesus and his values? Or am I disagreeing with it because it's a bit uncomfortable for me and it's not what I'm used to? And we need to think about that balance. And... Uh, Pete Gregg put this really well um, when he wrote The Vision. It's a sort of prophetic poem, a sort of proclamation of who we want to be as Christians. And here's a few lines of it. Incredibly cool, dangerously attractive inside and on the outside, they hardly care. They wear clothes like costumes to communicate and celebrate, but never to hide. Would they surrender their image or their popularity? They would lay down their very lives, swap seats with the man on death row. Guilty as hell, a throne from an electric chair with blood and sweat and many tears. With sleepless nights and fruitless days, they pray as if it all depends on God and live as if it all depends on them, their DNA chooses Jesus. They pray as if it all depends on God and they live as if it all depends on them. We're not dependent or clinging to cultural trends or norms. They're more like costumes helping us to communicate and we're willing to put them on if it helps grow God's kingdom to bring justice and to spread God's love in a very needy world. And prayer is a non-negotiable. 
Esther probably didn't particularly enjoy speaking in such gushing ways to the man that she knew had authorized the extermination of her people. Even less so, hosting their, her people's arch enemy for dinner. The clothes that she was wearing were almost certainly not what she'd grown up wearing and what she was used to, but she was willing to do it for a bigger cause. And the crux of all of this, of this balancing game, is that we need to seek guidance in prayer. We're called to remain faithful to God, to take everything to God in prayer is a huge privilege. And actually, if we don't do that, we won't get this balance right, because actually what I do is gonna be different to what Dave does, to what Judy does, to what Sheila does. Each of us will be called in slightly different ways. I might be called to go into a certain place that other people frown on. Meanwhile, someone else might be called not to go in there, to stand away and to be distinct and to say, actually, I don't agree with what's going on in there. But I've been called to go in there to speak to the people and get to know them and relationship. And actually, this is the wonderful thing about the fact that we're all different and God uses us in our different gifts, in our different ways of being. But if we're not seeking guidance, and we can't, we're not gonna know what to do. If we just follow what everyone else does, we're not gonna know how to balance these things. Spiritual preparation, ongoing spiritual preparation is essential and it's actually a huge privilege. And uh, there are certain things that aren't good and aren't right to get involved and we're called to remove ourselves and stand out as distinct as God's people. Like Daniel did, another character in the Bible, when he refused to bow down to the statue of the king and he refused to eat anything but the vegetables because he felt that that was molding into the culture too much and he needed to stand apart and be different and stand up for his God and be faithful to his God. But there are a lot of things that are just a different way of doing things. Daniel didn't actually go against everything. He underwent three years of training in a foreign system, which would have trained him into all kinds of ways of thinking and education. And he went for that, and he did well. He came out pretty top because he did so well. He was considered really good in all of that. And he, he did that. We have to choose what we go into. Esther went into the court when she wasn't meant to. But in every other way, she kept to what was expected of her. And we need to submit to ongoing spiritual preparation in order to know what to stand up against and what to use as a way to put ourselves in the right position to be heard. Which is why we as a church put such a heavy emphasis on prayer. And you might get annoyed with us saying that. But it's why we want to be a people that join together in prayer for our world, in issues of injustice, for our community, for direction, for each other. We want to take advantage of this amazing privilege of speaking to the God of justice directly and asking him and petitioning him and asking him how he wants to use us and what he wants us to do so that we can begin to sense in what area is God asking us to stand up against something unjust? Maybe us individually, maybe us as a church, maybe us as a small group. And to do something out of the ordinary, to stand against something ungodly. And in what ways might he be asking us 
to become like the people around us to reach them. And this is almost the opposite. We stand up against things and we become like the people around us in order to reach them. And it's part of this balance. If we're only willing to spiritually prepare, we'll end up not doing some of the stuff that God's asked us to do. If we're only willing to stand up against things, we'll end up alienating ourselves completely and not being able to get anywhere. People won't hear us anymore. If we're only willing to become like the people around us, we'll end up looking the same as everyone else and not bringing any of the distinctives of the kingdom of God to our broken world. We can't do any of those on their own. But together, these things are a recipe for a movement of God's people following their God to bring justice where it's missing. May we be a people that follow in Paul's example to grow God's kingdom. Paul said this, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. And then he has a big list of Uh, He made himself like a Jew to the Jews. He made himself like a non-Jew to the non-Jews. He made himself weak to the people who were weak. Whatever he needed to make himself, he did that. And he said, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So this was the first two things that Esther managed to balance in order to work towards justice, and that we're also called to hold both at once to further God's kingdom. And the last two things, which be a little bit quicker, that she held together in balance were two things that are both needed in order to have wisdom when we're working for justice. Esther knows all the formalities and what she should wear, how she should speak. She knows what to do. The first thing is knowing what to do, and we've spoken a bit about that. But if we just know what to do, we can still go very wrong. She doesn't immediately make known to the king what she really has come to about. She has an urgent request and yet she seems to be in no rush. And it's because she understands that wisdom's not only knowing what to do and how to present oneself, it's also a matter of knowing when. And we have to keep those two things in balance because if we go charging in, even if we know what we're going against, even if we know how we're gonna do it, if we go charging in at the wrong time, it can all go wrong. And that's a slight little aside, but a little bit of wisdom for you on the side on this thing, because it can seem like a bit of a weird sentence. Wisdom is knowing what to do and knowing when. Sometimes it's balancing two different things. And when I went to Jane Lyon, one of my colleagues, and I was saying a little bit about what I was going to talk about, she told me this. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. (laughs) But you get the point. In other words, just because you know something doesn't necessarily mean that you plow on ahead making other assumptions. In this case, Esther knew how to present herself and what she was trying to accomplish, but that didn't mean that she went all guns blazing and took the first opportunity that came to her. She had to wait for the right moment. 
Now, for those of you that know Lord of the Rings, it's a book um, or film about a group of people that go basically on a mission. They've got something to accomplish, and they go on a journey in order to accomplish this. And there's all kinds of stuff that happens to them along the way, all kinds of dangers. And right at the beginning, the hobbits, who are some of the characters, the little guys, are getting out of their um, land, which is called the Shire, and they're, trying to, they're discussing which route they should take. And one of them, Pippin, uh, makes a, this uh, comment, shortcuts make long delays. And he says, we should take the longer route, because actually, the shortcut's going to make long delays. He realizes that the end goal of getting out of the Shire isn't the only thing to consider. How they get out has to be thought through, too. The process, the journey, is important. And Gideon Hugh writes about this. There's beauty in slowness, in rejecting the path of least resistance and refusing to rush. Convenience is not a god. Take your time. Lean into the process. Be here, not ahead. I think so often convenience does become a god. We choose the fast option. It's what our society is trained to do. Go the fastest, quickest, most convenient route. Use the most convenient company, even if they are totally corrupt. We do whatever it is. We're trained to think in that way. Neither the justice of a cause nor extended spiritual preparation can excuse hasty and poorly thought out actions and speech. And actually... We have to think about this. What are our goals, our aims? What are we trying to achieve? What was the issue that came to mind at the beginning when I was talking? What is it that you want to do? And these might all be good things. They might be valuable and needed. But that doesn't mean that we dive in and plow towards achieving our goals, whichever way we think is quickest or easiest. In fact, Jesus told us to enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, because it's easier. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Often when we're following Jesus, we actually need to take the narrower path, the less used path, the steeper path. The important thing isn't really the length or the width, it's whether it's Jesus' way. And in fact, a while after Pippin says this, Strider, who um, is also known as Aragorn, um, who is kind of like the Jesus character. Every good story needs to have a Jesus character. If it's a good story, it has a character that saves the people from a bad situation. And in Lord of the Rings, um, Strider is one of these Jesus characters. He is the king who hides himself as a normal person, so that he is in the right place at the right time to save them from evil forces. But he says this in contrast to Pippin's earlier remark, my cuts, short or long, don't go wrong. And this is why we follow the God of justice. His, we want to follow his ways, whether they're longer or shorter, because his cuts don't go wrong. In the end, we know that his kingdom is going to bring justice. What are we in a rush to accomplish? What's something that we might be tempted to take a shortcut to achieve? 
Is Jesus maybe showing us a harder, slower path that we could consider instead that might actually make the journey more worthwhile and successful in getting to where we need to go in the end? Would Jesus take this shortcut? Or is it not in line with who he is and the values that he stands for? Ultimately, standing up for justice is unlikely to be an easy ride, whatever happens. In fact, many people get disheartened. I imagine Esther was terrified. But we have to keep going. Because even when the road is narrow and the path is steep, we follow the God of justice who will establish his kingdom. And I, for one, want to be a part of that kingdom. And the way that he uses us to build that kingdom is getting alongside people, his world, and loving them as if they were ourselves. And with that thought in mind, I found this video really inspiring. If you're someone who's thinking, I'm thinking of this issue of injustice, but there's just no hope, and you're feeling disheartened, Jesus calls us. His way is getting alongside people and showing them love and becoming like them and getting alongside them and helping them out of injustice. And I found this video really encouraging. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know what they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. So if we're going to be a people that work for justice, we need to ask God who it is that he wants us to stand with, to stand for, to become like them in order to fight for justice.
I've just noticed all the things aren't on there. We need to choose our battles. We'll be fighting on every front and never make progress. We need ongoing spiritual preparation, guidance from God. We can't do this on our own. But this doesn't mean that we totally distance ourselves from anything or anyone around us. We need to be sensitive to the context in which God has placed us and use the tools of the culture around us to work for justice, except where it's against God's character. And when we know what battle we're fighting and how to do it, we need to make sure that we work for justice in the way and the timing of Jesus, not in an impatient rush that wants everything now and easily, but in the way that is often harder, but ultimately far more rewarding in the way of Jesus. And there will come a time when it is the right time, in this life or the next, and this is our motivation to keep going. Justice will be done. Because the God of justice defeated injustice on the cross and has made it possible for a different kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And with this in mind, I'm going to pray and then we're going to celebrate that actually the God we follow is a way maker through injustice toward justice. Let's remind ourselves of that now. Father, we thank you that you are a way maker, that you show us the way and that you go with us along the way. We pray that you would speak to us now. We thank you for who you are. Amen. Amen.